future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. It is Monday, December 20th, 2021. Well, kind of, sort of. Uh, we're doing a little pre-record here. Uh, this stream should be going out live to uh, all of our patrons as a little kind of early access present. Um, but this will be released during our regular time on Monday. So most of you will be hearing this on uh, Monday night at 7 p.m., a regular scheduled show for Out to Coop Live. Yes, it will be our. this will be our last show of 2021. Um, it's pretty incredible that we're at the end of 2021. Um, and, you know, we do have uh, quite a treat for you today. But welcome to Raging Chicken's Out to Coop Live. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken on Out to Coop Live. We talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sort, right from our own backyards and from across the country. On Fridays, Sean Kitchen and I break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. And check out the Wednesday show with Cyril Michaleko. Cyril is a progressive columnist from the Bucks County Courier Times and the Intelligencer. And he joins me every couple weeks or so, although we've been having trouble this past couple weeks kind of connecting. Our schedules have been crazy. But normally joins me about every other week to drill down into Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and international politics. You can get all our shows by subscribing to us on uh, our podcast on Podbeans, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as 5 bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress and you can become a patron for as little as 5 bucks a month today. You can also help out the show by heading on over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. You can also join our Discord server, info on that, and the link to join is right in the show notes for today. And if you want looking for more PA Progressive Talk, tune in to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, or Facebook. And subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Go to therigsmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, folks, if you haven't already. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And look, you've got the holiday season is right upon us, right? You need some kind of last-minute game uh, gifts for those uh, gamers out there. Well, you got to check out the Game In. That's the Game In with two ends. The Game In is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything from Retro N64s to the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, and loads of collectibles, action figures, and Funko Pops. And kids, hey, look. School times, you know what that means. Get a discount with every A on your report card. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at TheGameIn. If you got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them an email at, at TheGameInPA at gmail.com. And a special shout-out once again goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at SongAdayMan. That's with two N's. That's the at SongAdayMan on Twitter. Well, we've got a good one for you today, everybody. Um, today is just in time for Christ, uh, Christmas week. I welcome Dr. Christopher Rodkey to the program. Chris is the pastor of St. Paul's UCC in Dallastown, PA, and a public theologian who engages in three publics, the church, the academy, and society. He has just announced his candidacy for state representative in PA's 93rd district, the seat currently held by Republican Mike Jones. We'll be talking about religion, politics, and the struggle for justice. Chris Rodkey is originally from Columbia in York County and attended St. Vincent College in Westmoreland County. After earning a master's degree at the University of Chicago, he went on to earn his Ph.D. in philosophy and religion at Drew, Drew, Drew University. Excuse me. And prior to his current position at St. Paul's UCC, he pastored a church in Lebanon County after moving back to P.A. He is the author or editor of nine books, including Too Good to Be True, Radical Christian Preaching, Year A, and The Word is Crucifixion, Radical Christian Preaching, Year C. He also owns a small publishing business. Barber's Sun Press is an outspoken activist in the area, especially for religious, religious tolerance, and is a judge of elections for his district. 
For the past 10 years, he's also been the adjunct professor of philosophy at Penn State York. He is married and has four children in public schools. And coming up soon, we'll talk about this a little bit later in the show, but he's having a press event for his candidacy um, for the PA 93rd District on January 16th in Jacobus. Jacobus, 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 PA. Uh, Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. Uh, After someone gives an introduction like that, I have to say, and it's only Wednesday, right? So um, Columbia, by the way, is in Lancaster County. I need to make sure I put a shout out to, I might have given you the wrong information. Uh, Columbia is the part of Lancaster County that Lancaster would like to give to York County. Uh, but that's where I grew up. <laughs> gotcha. So thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I, you know, I mean, we've talked, we talked before, I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. And this seems to be like a perfect time to have you, um, given everything that's in, that has happened over the past several months around these kind of crazy school board races, uh, what's happened with the, you know, the rising, like, you know, torrents of, of white supremacy and white nationalism um, and extremism. Um, and as we're kind of looking ahead to uh, kind of the new year, um, to kind of do a little reflective work here and think about the organizing that's that's before us. So let me ask you this as a way just to kind of set the table a little bit for uh, for today. I love this this you know this notion. You call yourself say a public theologian, um, and that echoed when I when I read that when I was seeing you kind of describe yourself as that that echoed so much to what I see you do in the world, right? So maybe you could talk a little bit about what, what do you mean by being a public theologian and um, how does that inform how you approach your ministry, but also kind of the activist work that you're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> so um, that's one of the signature things that comes out of the University of Chicago Divinity School is the idea of uh, the public theologian. Uh, and that's largely connected to um, a historian of Christianity who's well known there named Martin Marty and uh, a theologian named David Tracy, who I worked with. and. Uh, the idea is sort of asking the question, what happened to the pastorate in the last 60 years, right? Uh, pastors were respected in communities. They were learned. Uh, they were uh, engaged in justice issues often in mainline churches, although we know now not enough, um, and had a voice in the community that they might not have exercised enough, but they had a voice. And there were prominent clergy world, uh, nationwide, um, and Billy Graham sort of took that role at some point, but there were progressive clergy that, that were really well-known and were household names. And uh, Reinhold Niebuhr is probably the one that some of your older listeners right. might know. Uh, and Reinhold Niebuhr, of course, uh, uh, President Obama used to talk about was the most influential intellectual on his thinking. Uh, but Reinhold Niebuhr sort of the par excellence uh, public theologian that um, he was a young pastor in a reformed church in Detroit during the auto, the automation boom and wrote about how the economic expansion drove racism, you know, in, in that community. And um, so he was very interested in those issues and outspoken. He actually ran for office while he was a pastor there unsuccessfully uh, and eventually became the president of Union Seminary in New York City, which is, my, in my opinion, the best seminary in the country right now and was then. Um, so it's it's about the, the pastors just can't stay in the church. Right. And if if we're going to talk about cultural transformation and and having um, legitimacy in different worlds, one has to uh, engage the the academy. One has to engage the public and obviously one has to engage the church and there needs to be some nexus between those so that um, it, it practical speaking, it means that pastors should be reading up on what's going on in the world of theology and academic research. Uh, They should also have a place at the table uh, in those cases. And as you know, as an academic, like if you don't have a PhD, you're probably excluded from that table. Uh, Whereas uh, for, and and that's true in religious studies too, which is a very balkanized uh, academic discipline, more than most people realize that clergy are not present at all, essentially in the American Academy of Religion, which is our guild. Um, But there, but that's partially because there aren't clergy being trained to do that. Um, now, 
does one's academic engagement really matter that much when you're holding someone's hand who's who's sick? Um, probably not, but it engaged the other aspects of, of Christian ministry. So uh, I, I like that idea myself, um, and I've sort of lived into it, this idea of serving three publics, the academy, society, and the church. And sometimes those are in conflict with each other, and sometimes they work really well together. And when they work well together, I find that I'm really effective uh, in my roles. Well, it also seems to me that that sometimes you've mentioned say sometimes these things are intention right but it seems to me that that should be probably a critical aspect of any ministry right i mean is that the fact that the tensions are real um and it's not just one thing or another and i think one of the things i've always been fascinated about um with kind of ministry and, and the church and again uh, me, uh, me growing up in a catholic tradition but was that you know when you're when you're involved with kind of say ministry, even if it's just say you're thinking about just in the church itself, is that you're you're not guaranteed to have like a like a, a, a an entire community that all believes one thing, right? You're going to have people that are going to be across spectrums. They're going to think the world about the world differently. They have a whole range of different kind of interests and backgrounds and thoughts on the world. Um, and that becomes part of what has to happen. And, you know, a part of what you do, right, is you have to kind of negotiate this because you're there serving everybody, right? Not just kind of one group of people that mm -hmm. are sitting there as opposed to another. And it seems to me only like a natural extension that this would also happen when you kind of say, leave the doors of the church, <laughs> right? And walk out into the world is that because the world is really you know it, it, i just remember growing up and always thinking about that always listening to kind of say the stories of say you know the story of jesus and him talking to people in the world and i was thought like okay that's what makes sense right that you're actually reaching people that are out there in the world not just waiting for people to come to you but going out and being involved in what you know people are actually experiencing out there and that's what i always kind of heard you know, mm -hmm. both of watching some of your sermons online and also kind of reading some of your stuff is like that spirit of kind of engagement um, with people kind of where they're at. Right. In a way that it's like with people, not kind of over and above them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with uh, what I call uh, biblical illiteracy in churches. And um I think probably the most I've done some controversial things in my congregation, but I think the one that really I wasn't prepared for sort of the the I don't want to say backlash. That's not the right word, but the 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 problems, I guess, um, was once I decided I was going to start preaching more directly right out of the Bible on Sunday mornings. And I said, get out your Bibles. And people looked at me funny, like Bibles, you know, and I heard, you know, I heard the Bibles cracking open, you know, in the pews. And this is a UCC church. We don't do that. You know, the, the pastor reads it and then he tells you what to think about it uh, or she. And, um, you know, the thing is, is that biblical scholarship, when you take it seriously, is much more revolutionary than people realize. And for that reason, it, it, that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of churches and a lot of clergy avoid it, um, because it requires you to do hermeneutics, if you know what I mean by that, like deep interpretation of a text. And sometimes uh, a lot of clergy are not really prepared for that. And not all clergy go to graduate seminary or graduate school either. And I, I don't always think that's necessary. But one of the ways that I think about doing this in the church is... Um, and I think there's some generational differences about this, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm teaching you how to practice hermeneutics. I'm teaching you how to interpret the world. Um, and we do that by practicing how we interpret the, the text of the scripture and, and mine it for what's valuable here and what might be surprising and learning to interpret the world in this way. Uh, that the, the congregation is a community of interpreters. Right. Uh, there was a time when only the priest was allowed to read from the scripture. And I think in Catholicism still today, only the priest can read from the Gospels. Right. Um, because there is this role yep. of clergy as interpreter. Uh, but in in my worldview as a as a Protestant, um, you know, I, I'm believing the priesthood of all believers. And I want to empower and encourage my uh, congregation, my audience to interpret the world and go out and engage the world and, and take it seriously like we would take the Bible seriously in the church setting, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, to what, so this is, and 
the way I kind of have always have have evolved in thinking about, you know, say the role of say religion and say, you know, and, and not just the Christian Bible, but also kind of looking at kind of traditions of Islam and traditions of Judaism, where mm-hmm. is that on the one hand, like you said, you have this community of believers, right? And you're kind of serving this entire community, but it also seems that there's a, you know, there's always been a role in social movements and struggles for even when you're engaging with folks that may not be believers, Right. But there is an entire, say, Mm -hmm. moral and ethical discourse, right, where these these points of intersection where people can speak to each other. And whether or not that means that, you know, people say would join the church or not, it provides a rubric for what's the understanding our place in the world and our kind of our moral center. Right. And so I'm curious your thoughts on, on that kind of intersection, too, as well, is that the role that kind of, say, religion and and religious discourse has played in kind of in social movements and how important it is to for say even people within, say, religious communities. Right. To be speaking kind of to that broader community and for that matter. And for me, there's the reverse side, too, for those folks in those other in those kind of say the non-believer communities, if you will, um, to kind of like understand the absolute critical role that kind of the community of religious discourse plays for those social movements. I, mean, I don't know if that's, that gets us in too heady of a space right yeah. now, um, but, you know, that's the no, kind of dynamic I, mean, I always wrestle with in these discussions. I started talking about the, the church with biblical illiteracy, but I think in American society, we have a religious illiteracy. And uh, there's a fantastic book uh, that was a New York Times bestseller called Religious Illiteracy, uh, by Stephen Prothero uh, of Boston University, uh, who's a who's a social scientist who studies Stephen, religion. And, Stephen, who was that? I'm um, sorry, you broke up. Was Prothero, Stephen... Prothero, Prothero, P-R-O-T-H-E-R-O. Yeah, um, I think I don't know if he still teaches, but he taught at Boston University um, as a social scientist, and uh, he did a study of how much literacy is there really about religion in American society, given that probably. Only second to India, the United States is the most religious in the country in the world, right? India is probably the a little bit more than the United States. But given how religious our country is and how much religion affects our public life, how, how much do people really know about it? And uh, what he found was that that the more the more active you are as a religious practitioner across the board in the United States, the less you actually know about religion. And... And he even found that with certain groups that the the more they practice their own religion, the less they actually know about their own religion, too. Uh, and so the question is, like, why does that happen and why is that a problem? Um, and this book was written, you know, dur- I think during the late Bush years uh, in its first edition when uh, we were beginning to engage with the fact that uh, we had a executive administration that had no idea what it was engaging with when it came to Islam um, and and how a discourse on Islam had been sort of marginalized even in universities uh, as not a legitimate study of religion. But here we are and we have no idea what we're doing and, and not understanding the difference between Shiite right. and, and Sunni and, and, and what, uh, you know, during the whole Obama's a Muslim thing, you know, the this this uh, fear about Sharia law uh, was, you know, often like just blatantly not even factual to what Sharia law is, uh, aside from the fear of it. So there is this religious illiteracy out there, too. And um, I'm not sure it is necessarily the role of the church to educate the general public on religion. um, But that's where the academy comes in. And there's there's been a long movement among religious studies scholars that we need to have religious studies, not theology, but religious studies in public schools because it's part of the public good. And uh, uh, that's that's uh, that's about tolerance. It's about just basic information. It's knowing who your neighbors are. Um, though the argument could be made that as Christianity and religion in general has declined uh, in the United States, there might not be as much of a need for it. But interestingly, one of the things that came out of the study is most atheists know more about religions than pr- religious practitioners. Wow. Um, I don't know if that's still true 15 years later, but I would assume that it's true. So uh, this is this is a to me this is a this is a public problem uh, in terms of just understanding our own history. And uh, when I talk to college students about American history, and I'm not a historian, 
but um, you know, if well, you're you're an English professor, you know, if you teach, I was a double major in English in, in college, and when you're looking at early American literature, it can be frustrating to people because it's it's just religious memoirs and sermons, right? And right. and reinterpretations of Psalms, right? That the the Bible was very much how people learned how to read. Uh, up until the shortly after the Civil War, I mean that that was the book that was used for instruction in reading, um, and you know it's difficult for modern people to even read Abraham Lincoln's writings without knowing something about uh, biblical scripture, uh, biblical allusions, and and that sort of thing. So um, and even uh, understanding the Civil War and how the Mormons' uh, secession from the Union played a role into that. Um, you know, and what Native American religious practices were. These are things that ought to just sort of ought to be studied, you know, when we're talking about American history and it, and they aren't. And the, the case is made that it's because we're afraid to talk about it in public schools and, and rightfully so. Uh, and some of it has to do with the fact that uh, tra- uh, teachers are not really trained how to talk, talk about it. There isn't usually a way of certifying somebody to teach religious studies. So it sort of gets relegated to a social studies class of some sort, if, if at all. And, uh, and in fact, I think it was a social studies class in high school that uh, really got me interested in world religions, uh, where we did a little unit on, on China and Islam. And I started going to the public library, which is on my paper route, and uh, getting books out on, on these things I'd never heard of before. And luckily, my parents tolerated me doing it, and, and I got really interested in this stuff. But I had to work to find. Oh, that's it. awesome, and, and I think that you know you make it. Yeah, no, sure, and I think it's a really in, important distinction to make. And this is what, again, this is one of these conversations I have like like periodically and like consistently when they when people talk about, say, for example, the separation of church and state, right? I said a separation of church and state doesn't mean that you can't talk about religion, right? It means that right. you can't like like preach this religion and ask your students to believe it. it you know i'm like that's the distinction right and i think the fact that uh because I, I agree with you i mean i remember when i got to college i mean i was like excited to take every class i could take that was talk about buddhism talk about hinduism and stuff just because i had no idea mm-hmm. about kind of like belief structures and histories and all that stuff and it seems so important just to kind of know and it was fascinating right i mean and to, to say that we could approach, say, religious studies in that kind of way, right, where you're and, you know, and I, I think it's a, a phenomenal context to bring believers of different faiths, actually, or no faith at all, right, in conversation with one another in a kind of multicultural democracy, right? I mean, that seems to me to be like kind of at the core of, you know, an argument, at least I would say, of this stuff needs to be talked about kind of openly and, and kind of like like refreshingly <laughs> openly in the kind of American discourse, but <clears throat> you know, a lot of people outside so let me, of the academic so let me ask study you this. religion. So don't one of the reasons I wanted to have the... you on too as well. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, what, one of the things that I was uh, just going to say I th- I, I, for, uh, for, <laughs> it's okay. I think we're getting like a second off of our, our thing here. So um, I think one distinction that I think is helpful uh, for outsiders of the study of religion to, to understand, because I think it's helpful in terms of how we talk about religion in public, is that there's there's a couple, every discipline has different methodologies of how it goes about studying itself. And um, religion is awfully complicated, so it, it requires special gloves to handle. And um, I find it a helpful distinction that there's a difference between what we call phenomenological study of religion, which is social science-based, and constructivist study of religion, which is theology or insider. And a lot of it's outsider versus insider. So if I'm if I'm a scholar who's looking at religious practices in Nepal uh, and I'm using statistical methodologies, that's there is some sense of objectivity there. There is a methodology there. Uh, you can talk about religion in these ways without getting uh, into a, a uh, an evangelism mode, right? Um, but then on the other hand, there's constructivist right. or, or insider language. But 
And but you have to understand that stuff to understand the culture that we live in, too. So there's there are these tensions between these two different ways of doing religion. Sometimes in the academy, they don't get along because they see themselves doing something very different. But I find that that helpful when we talk about religion in schools that, you know, religion as a social science is legitimately uh, worthy of studying in a public school. Um, the question comes then, like, what do we do with the cultural side of it, you know, of understanding how insiders really practice the religion? And that's how you understand living religious movements. Um, and, and even in public universities, there's a real allergy of teaching the second uh, because they're, they're afraid of who's going to teach it and who's going to impose something they shouldn't in it. And that, that's, um, that's one of the big tensions in, in the study of religion right now. Absolutely. Um, yeah, just this is just a kind Sorry of to interrupt you. No, no, no. This is a little bit of a sh well, I think, like you said, this is what I was about to say uh, for folks that are listening uh, right now. Hopefully, if you're listening to the podcast, this I'll be able to kind of deal with this in the kind of the editing. But we're getting a little bit of a delay right now, just so everybody is aware. So if you're there's kind of us talking over each other a little bit, it's only because we're not realizing the other person has started speaking. <laughs> so I want to be clear. Yeah. Um, so we'll do our best to kind of make that up. And um, I, I don't know about you, Chris, on, on my end, I'm, I'm getting you breaking up a little bit. I don't know if that's happening for you too as well. Uh, I hear you fine, but um, I'll uh, do better. <laughs> no, 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 you're fine. You're fine. I think uh, one of the reasons that we record in Riverside is that um, we're kind of like recording locally and uploading. So we should, this should be fine for the podcast. And I'm sorry for all this meta discussion right now, folks, but I just wanted everybody to be aware if you are watching live, um, that's some of the disruptors. There's a little bit of a delay in our recording. We're not yelling so at So anyways, let's, let me... No, no, <laughs> no. And it's, I, but I am frustrated because like, I'm so, I, I, you know, the, I don't know, technology will, will kind of be the bane of my existence yet. I use it all the time. Anyways. So one of the, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today is like, you, I mean, you and I've talked a little bit about this online, but, um, why I think it's so important that we're looking at, say, these kind of intersections between religion and politics right now is what we've seen the emergence of kind of ex really kind of extremist forms of kind of religious discourse kind of in places that are coupled with kind of white supremacism that are coupled with um, like some of the, you know, the worst expressions of uh, what I would say is humanity, um, which, you know, actually flies in the face of the kind of work that you're doing and the kind of work that I think that a lot of um, folks are doing. And but it seems that that what is happening in terms of, say, the space of, say, religion um, seems to be really important to be included in this discussion of what's happening with this rise of extremism. So I'm wondering if you could kind of say, give us a little sense of how you see what's happening right now and what's particular why we're seeing this you know this this rise is this real kind of extremist and um kind of discourse that is emerging at this point yeah that's a great question and uh that that would require a whole lot of dissection uh and there are sure there is an emerging field in academic theology that is called public theology that is that is really looking at this hard um, and some of the stuff they come up with is really interesting. Um, so one of the things I think is helpful is that for decades, there's been this preeminent sociological idea called the secularization thesis. And the secularization thesis is that it believes that the more educated people become, the less religious a society is. And the more technology is that is introduced into a society, the less um, the, the less religious a society is. And some of that has to do with like a, a world worldview aspect of where God fits into the puzzle of the universe that there's as less things are unexplained that we encounter on a daily basis. There's not as much room for God's hand to be the, the random force of doing something beyond our, our understanding. Uh, and the role of, of God as this uh, sort of divine uh, intervener uh, sort of shrinks, right? So the my position, and I'm not the only one that takes this position, is that the secularization thesis is wrong. 
that uh, even though one might look at our society right now and see a decline in religion, I just saw another yet another study coming out that more adults are calling themselves having calling themselves none when they are asked what religion are you, they say none. Uh, there's no connection whatsoever with a tradition, um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the the the, lack, the forgetting of ethnic backgrounds uh, among uh, white folks in particular. Um, that that are still expressed in a lot of these mainline churches that are everywhere in the United States, but you see the the the, um, the place at the table culturally has really declined uh, in lots of parts of the country uh, from pat with pastors and churches. They don't they don't have the dominant place in society they once had, and it's it's easy to look and see. Yeah, the church the churches are really dying. Well. I would suggest that institutionalized religion is dying in the United States yeah. in many aspects. Um, for years, uh, the con conservative religious folks have argued, well, the reason why is because the liberals have bad theology. Well, the fact is that um, the, de <laughs> the decline of uh, the mainline church in the United States actually can be entirely statistically tied to the birth rate. Yes. Uh, when you run those models, it's actually exactly tied to it. And so it makes sense that more conservative religious groups that didn't want to have a decline really fought against contraception and sex education uh, because uh, the more babies they had, the more they could keep this narrative going that they have the right theology. But the Southern Baptist Church in the last year and a half or two years has seen the biggest decline of any religious group we've ever seen as long as it's been studied uh, in the United States. And a lot of it has to do with younger people leaving and they're not going anywhere else. They're just leaving. And uh, I've, I've come to the conclusion that in many forms of Christianity, I think I think the proper the proper response is to leave, uh, to, to continue to practice what's actually in the Bible, uh, because you're not seeing it institutionally implemented in front of you. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the case, but I, I think that is often the case. And I've I myself had had those experiences, too. Um, and I think young Generation X and millennials can completely relate to that. Um, but yeah. to the secularization thesis, um, religion is not in decline, but what we understand as religion is changing, right? You can call anything a religion and you can study anything like a religion. But when we give like the title religion, it isn't just the great traditions of the world. It's, it's ways in which we behave and interact with mythology and legends and affect. And um, it makes total sense that QAnon would emerge as this pseudo-religion. Um, there's a long history of secrecy yep. in spiritual practices in the United States. That's, that's a topic that has been forbidden in the academy for a long time. Uh, and now we're talking about it a lot more, as, you know, knowing that all most of our so-called Christian founding fathers were sort of... Uh, weird uh, deists that practiced Freemasonry uh, and just how much of that secret society influence has had on our culture um, that the conspiracy theories have always been with us in this country. They've always been part of the public discourse. They've all been motivated by pseudo or quasi religious movements. Um, Pennsylvania was the only state, I think, that elected an anti-Masonic party governor, um, for example, and yeah. uh, lasted one term. And uh, uh, the, the Ku Klux Klan, you know, is, is based in a secret esoteric ritual. Um, I, I mentioned Mormonism before. Mormonism is based in this ritual as well. Um, so it makes sense that there are these sort of sh chivalry orders, you know, behind the Proud Boys. You know, the, the inner circle of the Proud Boys is the sort of knighting that goes on and as a secret ceremony. Um, mm -hmm. And... That might seem awfully weird to outsiders, but th this has always been here. It's always been part of it. People that are in the movement often don't know what it is. You know, I, I imagine most people in the Proud Boys don't know about the insider circle, uh, or if they know about it, they're just not supposed to talk about it or just hope they get picked for it or something. Um, so this idea of secrecy and secret knowledge and certain making certain kinds of connections culturally is this interpretive key that unlocks the secret of what's really going on. And uh, I think a lot of it is also grounded in appropriations of anti-Semitic uh, uh, accusations, you know, about yeah. the, the, the divided influence of people behind the money and, and behind culture. So 
I think that we have become more and more religious. And I, with the Donald Trump movement, uh, some studies came out from the 2016 election. I haven't seen them yet from the last election. But the people who supported Trump the most out, outside of the East Coast, right, um, generally identified themselves as strongly religious, but they had a much less chance of being affiliated or identifying any religious practices that they have. Um, that they that the, there isn't really a separation of church and state any, anymore. The church has become the state, or at least it, it can be in certain situations. And that's this feeling that we need to return back to uh, with this mythology that that's what it was in the 50s, uh, which it may have been for some, but wasn't for all. That makes total sense to me. And I think that uh, I love the fact that you kind of brought up these these rituals as kind of being kind of integrated within these kind of conspiracy uh, conspiracy movie. And I think it's also it it, it opens up a, a kind of way of understanding uh, to what I think a lot of people experience as completely bizarre in the QAnon movement that you find like, uh, you know, mm -hmm. it's not just these, you know, cookie cutter ideas about what a white supremacist, for example, looks like, you know, is like some of the interviews that have been conducted with people that have gone over to this, this uh, QAnon are these folks that kind of found their way in through like crystals, right. And the vibrations of the yeah. universe, for example, and, and all this, and you see, I, I, for, I, I won't say, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but I mean, what I kept on seeing when I would see these interviews, what I see this deep sense of people looking for a place to belong and feeling like they had this kind of insider track, mm -hmm. a way of understanding it, even though it was disconnected from what we would recognize as, say, official religious discourse or these official big traditions. Um, but the dynamics seem like very familiar to me, to people that I could I knew and I grew up with um, within the Catholic Church. It was a similar kind of connection to these sets of practices and these sets of rituals um, that made them part of something else. Yeah, and um, I mean, white nationalism has always had this in, in its in its blood. Um, I mean, we, in religious studies, we often call Christian identity movements. Um, and of course yes. the Klan would be an example of that. Um, and, uh, I worked, uh, for a little while as a prison chaplain when I was, uh, in school and, uh, you know, a, a lot of times the white nationalism was tied to these extremist Christian groups. Uh, interestingly, we're now seeing white nationalism sort of morph into, we, um, appropriated neo-paganism uh, and other kinds of new age religions, like the Buffalo guy that everybody saw on January 6th, right? Yep. Um, you know, people, people were saying, well, this guy had to be Antifa because who would dress like that? Well, you could tell from his tattoos what he was, <laughs> you know? Um, you know, if, if you know the symbols, you know what's there. And the symbols are constantly changing. They love symbols, right? We saw this in Charlottesville too, that... Um, the, the clan was there, I guess, but it was these guys wearing polos with weird symbols on them uh, that are always changing. And you have to be an insider to know. And if you're left out, you need to find a way back in. And uh, when and when I say ritual, I don't mean that there is necessarily some initiation ritual to QAnon or these other groups. Right, right. Although there may be in some cases, it's the it's the performative act of being deep, deep being programmed right, uh, to certain kinds of knowledge and being given this unlocking of the secrets of the universe. I mean, people, a lot of times students, they know what Scientology is or they, they've heard of it. And so they're always like in religious studies class, are we, you know, are we going to stop talking about the main religions and can we talk about Scientology because I want to know about that? And why would someone believe about this Lord Zenu, you know, that 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 created, I, I'm not sure I even know the mythology that well, but why would someone believe this? Why would people put money into this? And it's it's because there is this ritual that every level of the practice unlocks a new uh, a new set of parameters of reality or ways of making sense of reality that you can only have if you are privileged enough to get to that point. And if you read the ritual work, if you had knowledge of it from the outside, you'd say, well, what is this? This makes no sense. That's why it makes no sense, because it's it's this graded uh, detachment from uh, the, the lived world we live in at, uh, under the assumption that there is this secret that unlocks the universe. 
And this has been around for a long, long time. I mean, Mithraism in ancient times, you know, had this idea of these rituals in caves that that unlock the secrets of the universe. And, you know, everybody knows Plato's allegory of the cave, right? Um, you know, that Pl Plato was actually, I think, trying to critique this idea that you don't need to go into a cave to have the secrets of the universe unlocked, right? Uh, now, Plato had some other weird ideas, but... Um, but there was the sense that the the more the deeper you go into it, the more things are unlocked and the more arcane it becomes. And it's important to remember, too, that um, after the Civil War, I think the number was one out of every four men in the United States belonged to one of these fraternal organizations, including African-Americans. Right. Mm -hmm. So one out of every four men in the United States belonged to one of these groups that a large percentage of them had these kinds of ideas going on, some of them harmless a lot of them Orientalist um, and others sort of, uh, you know, what we might look at as sort of unusual. Uh, but that that's this has been in our country for a long time. And uh, it's we're just seeing it reappropriate, re remorph into new practices. But but it has taken a more extreme form uh, and it's been allowed. It's been given permission to be in public more. Yeah, I'm thinking here, you mentioned the Christian identity movement, and I'm thinking of, say, Doug Mastriano, for example, uh, one of Pennsylvania owned, <laughs> owned who's, uh, you know, is toying of whether or not he wants to uh, become our next governor or try to. Um, but it was really interesting in some of the, the interviews that he was he had given to conservative radio or even pressured by some journalists um, about, you know, saying, like, look, like, you know, you're hanging out with white supremacists. This is white supremacy or this is, you know kind of white nationalism and he was very insistent upon calling himself like a christian nationalist for example right um and in mm -hmm. some of these interviews and he would make, make these kind of reference and you'd see this kind of discourse emerge as a way of kind of like deflecting claims that what they're arguing for is this kind of like you know white supremacy or white nationalism instead talking about this say christian nationalism um i'm curious like like what you think of that, number one, but then number two, how dangerous do you think that is in terms of like a movement by itself? Because, you know, I, I don't like to get into like hysteria mode where you're taking these real kind of fringe groups and kind of blowing them up to be bigger than they actually are. Yet, nonetheless, this is one of those one of those practices and discourses. It keeps on emerging and you find their numbers growing mm -hmm. in terms of um, these protests that are taking place on the Capitol steps, you know, uh, with their kind of like pine tree flags and all this um, making this claim for Christian nationalism. So I'm curious your take on that. Yeah. And um uh, it's interesting that I don't, I don't haven't looked recently, but the Proud Boys, when I, they first got on my radar, uh, and I know when I talked to the police in the community once about it, you know, they, they thought I was just, that sounds like something from the Dukes of Hazard, right? You know, they, they didn't believe me. Um, and they would say that we're not white nationalists, we're Western chauvinists, right? Uh, they, Western chauvin they've right, come right, up right. with different yep. ways of of uh, describing themselves to sort of step around this idea. And um, and a lot of the discourse is, and I think this is fueled in a lot of the critical race theory conversations in Pennsylvania, is, is, is this embracing of the rhetoric that says, when we talk about uncomfortable things regarding race and in, injustice uh, in our society, that the person who's bringing it up is the real racist for bringing it up, right? As long as we don't talk about it, as long as we can ignore it, uh, or certain uh, those that aren't affected by it uh, can ignore it, uh, you're the one that's creating the division. You're the one who's the true racist. So the the racist organizations are not really the racists here, uh, which from the outside people will hear that. I'm like, how could you even say that? It makes total sense on the inside. It makes total sense on the inside based on what their shared values are and the mythologies of history that they have. And that's why this battle over American history is is so crucial mm -hmm. uh, because they need to maintain this this sense of um, protecting the the narratives of American history that have always been accepted um, without question because it's like they were changing the Bible, right? And for a lot of these people like I think Mastriano, um, 
you know, and I don't, I don't know if he is a white supremacist, you know, but he, he's surely smart enough to know that they're following him around, right? And he might not endorse them, uh, but he knows how to bait them. And, you know, when he was forced off that committee, you know, a couple months ago, uh, was it Brian Cutler? Was the was that who was behind that? Um, these these groups, these different militia groups were outside of Brian Cutler's house, you know, harassing him outside, you know, right. because of what he did to Mastriano. Like he's Mastriano is not stupid. Right. So, um, you know, I I, um, I I hesitate to call people racist or white nationalists. Uh, without like sort of having a, a clear connection, but but it's there's this engagement with it, there's this play of it. One time I asked my representative Mike Jones, like, so how why do you feel it's okay that um, you know these these militia guys that are connected to white nationalism were like your security guards at the at the at the uh, the uh, Capitol for the speech today? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, there were only 80 people there. Like, how do you not notice this, right? Um, you know, and uh, you can tell from the symbols on their flags and they're, they're you know, they're not they're not really that hidden. Um, so with with Mastriano, I, th- I think that's the danger of someone like that, that he he knows how to play it stupid. Um, you know, I, I I used to think that Trump really wasn't smart enough to know how he was fitting into this narrative. I think he knows now. I think he sort of fell into it. Uh, initially, and then went with it when it was beneficial to him. Um, so, um, I might have gotten a little bit away from your question, um, but uh, this this stuff is is out there, and that is changing too. And one of the ways I think we see that change is this fervor about school board elections right. and and the stories of American history that any rational person on the outside would see. There's things we can talk about here. There's legitimate things to talk about here, but but the way in which we're talking about it, like we are changing the the canon of scripture, uh, is is a kind of religious affect that's being provoked, uh, and people might not realize that that's what's going on, but but that's very much what's going on. That um, that uh, I said to someone like, is it really racist to like learn that? Andrew Jackson was a real asshole, right? Um, you know, it, it, it shouldn't take it shouldn't take a, a, a one to go to graduate school to realize that he was motivated by a deep hatred of Native Americans and everything he did. Um, but but we need to like whitewash that history. You know, we we don't want to feel bad about having him on the twenty dollar bill. Well, you know, that provides a good kind of transition to this uh, last segment before we got to go today is that, you know, you mentioned Mike Jones. And of course, Mike Jones is in the 93rd uh, Pennsylvania district, um, District 93. And uh, you have just kind of thrown your hat in the ring, basically saying that you're going to run for state representative in PA's 93rd. And um, so I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about, uh, you know, your decision to kind of, you know, kind of jump in, right, to jump in this race. Um um, what got you to that point where you decided that you were going to run for office? And then then as a kind of a follow-up is talk a little about kind of what you hope to bring to this campaign and um, kind of what your campaign is about and how you're setting it up. So talk to us a little about that. Yeah. So I hope you can hear me now. Um, yes. Yes. Much better. I got interested in – I've always been interested in politics, and I was part of a 4-H program. I don't know if they still do this sort of thing with 4-H uh, for um, government engagement. And uh, one of the things I got to do with that, uh, in addition to learning a lot more about state government, and I think we focused on agricultural issues, um, was that I got to be a, a guest page for several days in, in the Harrisburg Capitol. And, and that was a overwhelmingly positive experience. I, I mm. learned a lot. I, I, uh, uh, I, really, I, I was really impressed that the representative I was with, like, at one point asked the secretary how many people called and said, do this. And how many people called and said, don't do this, you know, and explaining that this is an issue I really don't have an opinion about, but I go by who, who called and left a message, you know, told them what they think. And, and I was just surprised that people had that kind of influence, you know, and um, I, things are different now. Uh, but um, I've, I've always had an interest in politics. And when I moved back to Pennsylvania, um, I made a point to um, uh, 
get involved on more local levels and state levels than I had before. And uh, moving to Lebanon, uh, we had uh, Lebanon always is always a hotbed of like weirdness when it comes to state politics. Uh, there was a state representative there named Rosemary Swanger, and I found very quickly that just asking basic questions really intimidated them. And I really um, saw that I had I had a power over these people by just being smart and asking the right questions. And uh, we can get into the details of it, but I, I'd like to take credit for sort of derailing one of her initiatives once just by asking a question on a radio show. Um, but when I moved to York County, I knew what I was getting into here. And uh, when I first started engaging a state representative at the time was Kristen Phillips Hill, who's now a state senator. Um, she and I did, don't see eye to eye on very much, but she always gave me her time. She was always very respectful. She was always like, you know, pretty forthright with me about things, I think. And um, and while I, I understand we have different positions, like there is this sort of genteel thing going on. Now, I know that not everyone had that experience with her, but my position as a pastor might have might have had something to do with that. Um, when Mike Jones was elected, um, I didn't know much about him. Uh, he, he's tried to sell himself as a sort of bipartisan moderate. And I think he actually sort of started out playing that role, but over time, that's not what it is. Uh, and it may be that he's changed over that time. I don't know. Um, but I started engaging him online. I think the fetal funeral bill, the first time it came up, uh, I was, might've been the first thing I, I contacted him about. And um, I, I was just so disappointed by how he answered questions. And so long story short, when, when the pandemic started, I started paying a lot more attention to state politics. We were all locked in our homes and uh, I got tired of watching the news on TV all the time. So I'd spend my evenings after the children would go to bed uh, to, to look, look at what's going on in Harrisburg and, and then compare it to what I am being told is happening in Harrisburg, right? Right. Because the only you have to really work to find what's going on in Harrisburg, and most people don't have that luxury unless you're really looking for it. And so you have to the the only way you can get that information is by entrusting that to your local representative, who who is often giving you very selective uh, information uh, from a very particular point of view. And and I now know that like there are committees that write these things that they put out in their emails and stuff that they might not know about the things they're voting on. Uh, they're just sort of playing along with what they're being told to do. And I was just, and maybe I was naive, but I was just shocked the more and more I saw that, uh, that, that not, not being answer, able to answer questions and then just like not looking at it to see what it is I'm asking about playing this willful ignorance role is just not acceptable. And, um, I've just been so disappointed. He ran un, un, um, unopposed the last time, and I think he's he has moved to the right more with it. I think he got more egregious about yeah. – uh, he, he thinks that he owns the libs by acting like uh, a fool on his Facebook page, and he spends a lot of time arguing with people on his Facebook page. So I've taken full advantage of that o over the last year. Uh, and interestingly, he's gone back and deleted almost all of it from his Facebook page. So – it was something I've been thinking about for a long time, and I was saying to everyone, if no one else is going to run, somebody's got to do something because I, I hold to the belief that central Pennsylvania is part of the road that led to January 6th, right? Uh, Frank Ryan's false information about the elect election numbers is still being repeated. I, I recently heard yes. uh, uh, the podcast American Radical uh, where they had parts of Trump's speech that morning. Uh, that I don't, I'm not sure I heard the whole thing before. And he's quoting stuff we heard in Pennsylvania. This stuff came from Pennsylvania. They knew they were yep. lying about it. They knew that they were misrepresenting things. Frank Ryan's an accountant. He, he there's, I, I, How can he be an accountant and not and like mis, uh, misgive such blatant false numbers? You know, and of course, again, I'm a little naive about it, but um I, I really saw this discourse as dangerous and somebody has to do something. And I put it out there, you know, to some people, I'd be up for running if, but if you have like a, if you have someone else that really wants to do it, um, or if you have a woman or a person of color that wants to do it, I'll get all behind that. Um, people were sort of shocked when I said that, but I, I meant that. 
Um, the a woman ran against him when he first ran. It was sort of a last-minute candidate for someone that dropped out, who I think is fantastic. I talked to her uh, before going through any of this. And um, so, and so here I am. And, and the more I've talked to people, the more they, they think, you know, you know, it's really hard to unseat a Republican in York County. But right. as it happens, we just saw it happen in, in central York, where there's an R plus 15, I think. Uh, in in that school district with the school board, even with money coming in, significant money coming in to fund the Republicans in that race. Um, if people are aware of what's going on, I think that most people have the common sense to realize that we need to switch course. The problem is, of course, that the left is demonized in every way. And, and, and interestingly, that's what I see happening right now, uh, particularly from him, that there's this demonization of the left because He's got no argument, you know, um, he's there. There isn't much he can really say that he's done other than promoting masking for small business. So um, a big part of what I'm I'm running about and he will often say things. No one's done more for small business in this area than I have. And what he means by that is is the restaurants and the masking business that he really got. Right. Behind. So uh, the, the issues I'm really running on uh, are first uh, support for working class business that. Um, we hear Republicans take credit for business all the time. Uh, they they uh, say things like, as he just said, no one's done more for small business. But the thing is, we all know middle class, working class businesses that got left behind in the pandemic uh, and are just completely ignored when it comes to Harrisburg. And, and, and I know people personally, I have people in my family that are this way. Um, I'm a, I'm a first generation college graduate, my family. So like my, my fat background is working class. You know, when you talk to uh, electricians and plumbers, right, and barbers and hairdressers that are self-employed, they're not employed by somebody else. A lot of them were afraid to apply for aid because they were afraid they were going to get screwed or they were afraid that they didn't want to risk the disappointment. They didn't have somebody helping them make decisions, say, look, if if this diner that's not following masking can get half a million dollars, like you can get 15,000 to cover the time you close. Right. Right. And um, I even know somebody that applied and the bank made a mistake. They won't admit that they made a mistake. And that person got fined for for filing wrong papers. Uh, so instead of getting help, the person's now like having to legally fight fight the case that he shouldn't have to pay the fines for for filing the wrong papers. And I'm not exactly sure how that went, but I, but I know the person well, and I, I understand what what they're going through with it. And and of course, this is and of course, African-American owned businesses, same thing. I mean, we saw this with agriculture, uh, black owned agriculture businesses on the federal level that, that they're left behind because they don't trust the system and rightfully so. Um, and these are the people that aren't out there complaining about it. They're not out there. Uh, lobby. They don't have lobbyists. They, they, they don't right. have a real voice in public. The, and honestly, they don't care about stuff at the state level. But they got really left behind in this process. And, um, and I feel pretty strongly that we can talk about small businesses, but talk to your neighbor who owns, uh, who owns a rental property and has not been paid for a year. And we can talk about whether that was a good idea or not. But the fact is that the land, these middle class landowners now are subsidizing all of it without getting aid. Right. And um, I, we owned a rental property for a house we couldn't sell that we bought right before the 2008 boom uh, or the 2008 crash, I should say. And, right. you know, it took us 10 years to get out of that. And luckily, like we sold it just a month before the pandemic started. Um, and had we not done that, we would have been financially destroyed. Um yeah. You know, I'm very fortunate. So and it's it's your neighbors that you never know own a house that they couldn't sell that they're renting out or an apartment they're renting out that that got left behind in this. And so those are the people I'm talking about that are are under the radar and are everywhere in our state. Um, the second big uh, issue I'm running on is equitable school funding. Uh, which may not be an issue when the court case comes through with this, right? I'm not sure how that's going to go. Um, right. But York County is the most underfunded school district. It has the most underfunded schools in the entire state, right? Not the cities, uh, the, the urban areas. York County is the most underfunded. And even a place like Dallastown, where I'm at, is underfunded by about $8 million a year. 
And that's nothing in comparison to York City, which is like 52 million a year, right? I mean, imagine what York City schools could do with the $52 million that they ought to be getting. But instead, local taxpayers are, of course, subsidizing richer parts of the state that have had a population decline, that are taking larger amounts of money per student to their ritzy private schools and charter schools um, so that uh, that they can maintain uh, good graces with with that community and the EITC programs. Uh, Cannabis legalization is a big part of what I'm talking about, too. Um, I'm not really sure where a lot of Republicans fall on this. I think they're just waiting for a Republican governor to come in so that they can claim it's their idea. But um, I I feel very strongly that um, whether you like it or not, it's coming. Right. So I, I think we're past the point of recognizing that it's coming, that yeah. we don't really have a much of a choice about whether it's coming or not. So that that moral questions off the table and we're we're behind the time on this in some way. So I feel that we should be the first state to do it right. And by that, I mean that that farmers and agriculture uh, in Pennsylvania is the number one issue for every aspect of how we're going to do it. It's got to be good for the farmers. It's got to preserve our farms. It's it has to find a way to make sure that uh, new businesses, uh, young people that want to get into the business, are not shut out by corporations, right? And and we know I've seen recently some numbers about racial disparity in terms of who works in that industry. Like one per one point two percent of that industry outside of where it's legal are non-white, right? I mean that's that's serious. Like that that's something. Um, that needs to be addressed in some way. We have to look at the other things that went wrong and, and, and address it. But I really want to focus that the farmers need to be the main priority. Right. And the, fi- the final thing I'm really stressing with my, with my campaign is uh, sustainability and stewardship of the land. Um, you know, we can, every time we talk about environment and business, it always, the conversation starts and ends with fracking. Um, and you've talked about this on your show before. Um, and we never get past that, right? And we need to think about uh, sustainability in a broad sense in terms of new business startup and higher education. And, and we need to not just train engineers that will want to stay here and, and use our best natural resource, which, which is the land. The state's named after the woods, right? So um, convincing young people to stay here with exciting new businesses like that and but that the, we also need salespeople. We need technicians, right? Uh, we need business uh, savvy people. You know, it's it's not just an engineering issue, and I think it's going to require a, a shift, particularly among higher education and secondary secondary education, to really prioritize this. We're we're getting ready for it with cannabis legalization in some ways, but we're not getting ready for this for this boom of industry. So those are the four main points. I, I There are other issues I'm interested in, but those are my main talking points that I'm putting forward. And what I'm trying to show is that I'm tr- that I like to enter issues from the side rather than from the rehearsed conversations. You know that um, what I'm talking about with sustainability, very few people are talking about. Um, and that's I think we need to think bigger. I think we need to think bigger in Pennsylvania. There's no reason why we can't be the the leader of the country on these issues. 100%. Well, you know, uh, you know, Chris, I, I appreciate you so much for coming on today and I'm sorry about some of the, the tech issues that come in. So all that means yeah, is that, you that. know, no, no, no. I mean, all that means is in 2022, when you got your, uh, kind of press events, things like this, we're gonna have to have you come back on the show and, uh, and, uh, talk even more about this, uh, because I, you know, I'm just thrilled, um, that, you know, that you chose to run number two, that you're running on a platform that I think speaks directly to where we need to be kind of here in Pennsylvania. Um, and, you know, like, like, like I said, you know, or like you said, is that, you know, you're talking about in center County, the center part of the state where we played such a kind of a critical role in things like the insurrection and so on, that we need to be kind of engaged and kind of be running politically and building power building organization over time in spaces like this. So uh, I appreciate all the work you're doing, man. And, uh, you know, I definitely want to have you back on in the new year. Um, we'll get into some of these issues once again. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Are you, 
Oh, you got it. You got it. Um, so stick around right after, or right after I go to I, I go to break, and we'll we'll kind of chat real quick. Um, so hey, everybody, uh, thank you for tuning in for today. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. I'm sorry that we kind of had a little kind of like uh, some technical glitches. Hopefully, in the final version of this that you're going to hear on a, on Monday that it um, I'm going to have most of the stuff worked out. Uh, fingers crossed. Um, but this, uh, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for kind of checking us out. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Want to remind you, you can help support this show by going to patreoncom RC Press, and you know um, we got lots of work to do in 2022. Last show, last out to coop live of 2021, right here, folks. So, uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, Chris. And uh, we'll see you on the flip side. See ya.